Hi, Joanne. Um, you're, you're the founder of and CEO of Sea Change Happens, um, and you're very kindly hosting our webinar on the 25th of February, uh, Finding Your Why of DNI. Um, I'd really be keen to find out, you know, how, how you came to set up um, Sea Change Happens, how it all came about. Yeah, hi, Rosie. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me along today. Yeah, it's Sea Change Happens. Well, the actual name came as a flash of inspiration one day. I was sat in a, an inspirational workshop, actually, as it happened. A friend of mine in Portsmouth was running a, an inspirational works, uh, workshop, and I went along to support him and also be inspired. And I was, as I sit in the audience, my mind was wandering like it does. And I'd, always had, the, I'd had the mantra, smile, engage, and educate for quite a while. As I was sitting there, smile, engage, and educate became C, S-double-E. And for some reason, Gandhi popped into my head, you know, the, be the change you want to see. And I was exploring with C and then change and happening. And suddenly, C change happened, popped into my head. Uh, at which point, I got my phone out, checked whether the domain existed, and it hadn't. So I registered the domain there and then. Um, and that, that was born, Sea Change Happened, on the 6th of June, I think it was, 2017. But before that, I had toyed with several career options or, or, or second career options. Having run an IT company for 25 years, I sold up, um, gender transitioned, career transitioned, uh, all in the space of a month in early 2017. And I decided my passion around was inclusion and belonging. And... Originally, it was more around trans inclusion at the beginning, but then I realized that if everyone wins, I'm everyone, so I win as well. So it's about creating a fairer society where everyone could succeed, everyone could thrive. And it wasn't about me, it was about everybody. So that's kind of where it came from. So that, that's a bit of a plot history of what sparked me off. Uh, so that was back in middle of 2017. And I've been uh, building that experience up ever since, really. What was your experience prior to setting up the business of being trans in the in the workforce? How how have you been received um, in in your previous career? Well, I ran my own IT company, so it was a bit. I I, I always admit I bottled it. I I didn't have the courage to transition at work, and I know that's a similar problem that many trans people face. Is that uh, it's quite a big ask to reinvent yourself in full view. So I, I kind of bottled it. So I've had this IT company for 25 years. I had business partners, customers, suppliers, a network and everything. And luckily, my business partners offered to buy me out. So I, I, I bottled it at that point. I took the money. I left. I transitioned afterwards. Okay. As it happens, so would... they, 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 they were kind of, there was, there was less, less than positive trans inclusion vibes in the organization, which led me to feel less included or less, less belonging there. So I kind of, I, I detected that, that added to the anxiety that I detected that. But yeah, since, since then, largely I would say I've been embraced by society and the people I hang out with and the network and businesses you know, such as yourselves. I found it pretty receptive. Okay, yes, there's been some... Um, Surprise moments, surprise comments, a bit of stalking on the internet, a few uh, 
I even received a, a letter in the post once, give me a lecture on what I should and shouldn't be doing. So someone actually looked up my name and written me a letter, a good old fashioned way. Um, so that surprised me. But yeah, largely, largely pretty much embraced, accepted. A few friends um, drifted off, but no different to leaving school, leaving university, changing jobs. You move away from people, you no longer have the same interests, you don't keep in touch. So I don't think, I don't believe anyone has, has been proactively excluding or nasty or, or hateful. It's, it's kind of, we just moved on different lives. Yeah. Sure, sure. And what advice would you have to uh, candidates who are transgender, who are applying for jobs and, you know, how they should position themselves in, in, in that, that application process? Well, the reality of the majority of people is, there's some statistics published recently, and uh, what, what it found was that one in three employers said they would employ someone who was trans, but two in three employers admitted they wouldn't. So that's quite a significant proportion of employers. And, and is that just in the UK, Joanne? This was a UK survey. Okay, um, yeah. I've got no, no, no facts, but the UK is, I don't think ahead or behind the curve compared with most places in Europe. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around trans identity. So whilst I hate to say it, I still think trans people should be cautious of the discrimination, the bias that exists in the recruitment process. I've openly had conversations with recruiters over the last few years. I, 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 one of my specialities, I advise on inclusion in recruitment process. And I've had very candid conversations with, with uh, hiring managers and recruiters. And they're honest with me and say, it's going to be tough to find you a role. Um, that's the reality of the situation. You're a great candidate, but there are only so many companies I can, I can offer you to because I know that you won't get a good reception at other companies. So that's, that's recruiters being open and honest yes. about the bias that exists. And I, I would say, if you were being honest as well, you probably echo that there are, there are challenges of placing a trans candidate in, in organisations. Yeah. through bias, through misunderstanding, through fear of, of culture, interruptions, whatever it may be. So we're not, we're not the ideal candidate. No, but interestingly, over uh, the last few years, a couple of my clients have actually moved towards uh, blind CVs and uh, where we've had to anonymize the candidate CV. So there's, there's no suggestion if it's a male or a female or, or, or any other, um, you know, uh, sort of, I don't know. Characteristic, yeah. Characteristic discriminated. Yeah. Um, so where they've been to school, what their hobbies are, etc., all comes off the CV, um, which can, which can be a challenge from a recruiter's perspective when you're presenting a shortlist. Um, I certainly found it when I was uh, recruiting for an HR director, and I had to talk about candidate A, B, C, D, and E. And I always like to tell a bit of a story about a candidate and why they've you know landed in the sector or you know following mm. the they have done um but actually i think it's it's a fairer approach for everybody it, it is and I, I completely agree where we have that kind of objective based recruitment process it, it, it does help mm. but as i often say at some point you have to meet me uh, or if all you're doing is kicking the bias football down the field and you're going to pick it up later then i'd rather told me at the beginning that i had yes. no chance than to waste my time and go through the process, be selected, meet them and go, ah, she's mm. not quite the person I was expecting. So yes. unless the organization themselves has a great DNI culture, 
where everyone is able to thrive, everyone is able to succeed. And that I don't suddenly arrive and find that the bias hits me in the face. If I turn up and I was black, if I turn up, I was not white English. Mm. Would I st- would I also have the same same difficulty? So I think, yes, anonymizing gets it so far. But if all we're doing is pushing the bias down the field, then there's a long way to go. So what's, it's what's about tra- yeah, training the hiring teams, getting the culture right. Because actually, why would I want to work for an organization that doesn't want me as a person? Yes. Yeah, you may value my skills, but you don't want my characteristic. Well, in that case, I'll, I'll keep moving because I'll find somebody who does love me for who I am. Yes. And yeah, so it, I, I take it positively, but many people uh, find that, well, that, that's not great for their mental health. It's not great for their own self-esteem to be rejected mm. for being who you are when it goes above above your skill set. So yeah, I, I think re- the whole recruitment process still has a long way to go, not just for trans people, but for people of yeah. any other of difference, if you like. Yeah, and and it's it's so challenging now. You know, with COVID, with so many people who have experienced redundancy um, during these times, is, is there's even more competition out there for mm. the roles? Oh, for sure. I mean, I I have evolved my CV, my resume over the years, and I've I've taken to taking out the fact I used to make it explicit that I was trans. You know, I, I put. I put an opening statement that I've had a life of, life of two halves, IT career as a male person, and then DNI career as a female person, with a bit of an explanation in the middle. And yes. I, I don't know whether that denied me opportunities. So I, I've decided to take that, that emphasis out because also, to be honest, I've moved on in my life where I don't feel that, that, that need to explain myself anymore. Maybe at the beginning I did. And now I'm just me, so I want to be. I want to. I want to be positioned as me. Uh, the only reference I think is that I I promote trans um, awareness into businesses as part of my um, skill set. So that's the only reference I put in there now. Yes. So yeah, yeah uh, I, I don't think signposting these things does anyone any favors anymore. Uh, regretfully, I think it's better to keep yourself sanitized and take responsibility for your own data cleanup if you like yeah minimize your footprint yeah, yeah absolutely no that makes complete sense so it, it'll be you know interesting for, for our webinar we're going to have a, a sort of uh hr director and chief executive audience um um and and and, and clearly potentially some people that you're already doing some work with um mm. you know, possibly we we could ask our audience if there's any other areas they'd like to cover in, in, in this, this session with you in February, the end of February. Yeah, I mean, the core topic is finding a why of DNI, and I won't I won't ruin the the story. But too often we we find organisations with this DNI playbook, or they've had a, they've had a strategy come in because I can come in to give them a strategy. This is our DNI strategy, and when you actually drill down and ask the senior leadership team, the C-suite, the managers, the, the teams, the, the people on the floor about this strategy and playbook. Very often, they do, either don't know it exists, they can't talk about it, and they haven't found their own personal why of DNI. They don't understand why it's important for them as an individual and what their part is to play in the organization. Uh, often people think it's an HR problem, it's a DNI problem, yeah. whereas it should be everybody um priority so we all feel it and we understand it so that's part of what i want to be talking about and it'd be interesting to hear from 
your, the people are going to sign up, people are going to come along, what their challenges are. Do they own their own strategy? Do they have a strategy? Could they talk about it for, yes. for, for 10 minutes to a stranger? Could they explain mm. it to their 10-year-old child why mm. it's important to be anti-racist or why it's important to be inclusive? So that's why I try and encourage people to have is that, that their own their own why to back up why the, it's important for the organisation and society at large. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, definitely we've, we've seen a, a lot more businesses in the UK uh, recruiting for heads of DNI, and it, it's absolutely on, on the HR director's agenda going forward. Mm. Um, I suppose it, it's kind of finding uh, the individuals who, who have that experience to, to actually educate um, organisations in, in the right way um, in terms of, sort of handling those, those, those unconscious biases. It is a challenging role. It's multifaceted. It's not simply around unconscious bias. It's also about process change. It's about yes. uh, creating awareness. It's, it's, I think it's a cross-directorate role. It's, it's no longer just an HR people thing. It should be looking at product design, premises, everything that a business does, operations. Are we including all of our customers? Are we making sure that our customers feel represented? Are we making sure that our, our products are designed for all, not just a man or a woman of this height or this dimension of, yes. this, of this ethnicity. So it, it really is it's, it's taking DNI as a business core business function and reporting to the board for every every leader, every director has a DNI element in their role and, and a KPI. In the same way that we all worry about health and safety, we have our risk registers, we have yes. our, our reports, we should be reporting on what are we doing to be more inclusive? What responsibility are we taking as a leader to make sure our direct reports are thinking like we do and making sure that's pushed down? So that, that's, that, again, that's, that's my soapbox, that's my passion is to, is to yeah. instill this into organisations where this really is this, a systemic change in the way the organisation thinks and breathes. Let me, let me, ask, you, let me ask you a question too. As a as a headhunter, as a as a senior leadership placement organization working with HR leaders, do you find it easy to push back against requirements that are maybe not diverse in their in their thinking? You know, do people are people still restrictive and saying, "Well, I'm looking for somebody who is a bit like this or a bit like that." Um, must must have been to this school. Do, are you able to push back, or do you find that it's very yeah. difficult? I, I, what we're finding a lot of currently is people are being really prescriptive about the industry sector where someone might have come from. So they might particularly say we, we want an HR director who's, who's worked in retail or hospitality or leisure. But actually, when, when it comes to, to HR, the, the skill set is so transferable across industry mm -hmm. sectors. And um, that, that, that is something that, you know, quite often when we're putting together a shortlist, we say, well, right, here are two people from retail, hospitality and leisure. But actually, I've got this fantastic person who's worked in tech and this other person from financial services. But they're quite, quite often there's a preconception as to what that, that person's going to be like. And people just stereotype the FS person as being all oh, really corporate and stuffy, maybe. And, and, and don't want to consider them as part of the shortlist. And it's up to us to, to convince and persuade, um, you know, that the hiring manager that this candidate is worth seeing. And quite often it, it's to do more with the, um, the, the culture and fit to team and, and, and their, their behaviours and characteristics, not about which industry sector they've come from. 
That's interesting. Like, it's yeah, really I, that, that's, that's kind of what I see as well. It's they're trying to fit a, a, a round person to a round hole, and if you're a bit square, mm. they it's about hit, this, this buzzword, you know, hit the ground running, fitting yeah. into. We know we know the sort of people that work well here. It's culture mm. fit stuff, isn't it? Yes, which as we know is a is a big barrier to bringing people from underrepresented or marginalised communities is they don't tend to have that track record and they, it's very hard to get that experience until you've done the role. Yeah, it's yes. a shame. Yeah, and it's the same challenge for, for young graduates sort of looking mm. for the market because they haven't got that experience and if they're not hired, how are they going to get the experience? Um, so it's so, so challenging for the, the, those people as well. Yeah, I work with organisations that are trying to look for diversifying their boards either non-exec roles. And the reality is that most people, when they're recruiting for boards and non-exec boards, are looking for someone who has a similar experience in a similar organisation. Yes. And if you're trying to bring board diversity in, then you've got to recruit someone who's maybe not held a director post before, in which mm. case you've got to have a, a training programme, an onboarding programme, uh, teach people about your obligations as a company director, teach people about how to read balance sheets, teach people about how to understand marketing, because you actually want their other skill, which is yes. their lived experience and their insight into their community. But often we don't take the risk because they've never been a director before. They've ne- they don't understand what it's like to read a balance sheet. So, yeah, I think if you're looking to diversify, you've got to look at not just time served or experience in role. You've got to look at adaptability, learning ability, flexibility, and the, the ability to pick up stuff and, and hitting the ground running, maybe consigning that phrase to, to, the, to the past and look at uh, potential in people and yeah. what they can do and what they can bring. And that's, that's where we can start level the playing field. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, we, we've also got those organisations where, you know, if, if you're in your 50s, you're sometimes considered to be t- too old for that organisation. And, you know, I, I've, I've placed a couple of candidates recently in their 60s and, I, you know, there's absolutely no reason why they can't do the job a, a, as well mm-hmm. fact, with different life skills uh, to, to bring to the party. And, you know, that, yeah. that wealth of, um, you know, mums who, who have maybe taken a couple of years out to, to bring up their young family returning to the workplace, quite, quite often, you know, the lines ruled through them because they think, oh, you know, their priorities, their their family now, and and, and not mm. their, which um, which is a bit of a shame. It is a shame, and I think the other the other thing is if you take, take ten years out of the workplace, if you wind the clock back ten years, half of the things we do without thinking, Slack, Teams, Zoom, d- didn't exist ten years no. ago. So there's this re-onboarding and this retraining of people, investing in people, because, you know, they were fantastic 10 years ago. They've got all that experience about being a parent, coping, priority, time management, financial management, all the stresses, as we know, being a parent. And that, that's the, fact, the skill they bring. In fact, they're bringing some of that paternal and maternalistic instinct into, into organisations yes. of a multi-generational workforce can be a calming and supporting influence, and we often miss that about people and we should invest really in, in the return of programs and the investment in the training and the onboarding and giving people chances and without without making them lose their self-esteem by by starting them again recognize all that lived experience is valuable i mean i'm 56 i've just turned 56 and i've reinvented myself completely in, in yes. every way Brilliant. in four yeah. years so 
don't write me off at 50. I, I've, got, I've got another lease of life here. I've got another, hopefully, 15, 20 years in me. And I'm still learning. I'm a lifelong learner. I'm committed to this. And yeah, to write me off because I'm over 50 is, is a, yeah, I, I, and I'm not unique. Obviously, I'm, I'm just a typical person in their 50s with all that experience to see into the heart of somebody, get to know them. Absolutely. Uh, rather than just a bit of paper.